Main Street to Wall Street, global business celebrity and former Fortune 100 C-suite executive Jeffrey Hazlett takes you inside the good, the bad, and the ugly of businesses today. Saddle up. It's time for All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. My guest today is none other than Keith Ferrazzi, founder and chairman of Ferrazzi Greenlight, a management consulting and team coaching company. He's going to address ways to achieve unparalleled growth while mitigating unforeseen risk. He's on a mission to transform the world through relational and collaborative sciences and was also, get this, the youngest CMO of a Fortune 500 company ever when he was the CMO at Deloitte. Keith, welcome back to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett. Well, fabulous. Well, this is a great, great, great pleasure because I'm going to keep this very informal because this person happens to be a really good friend of mine as well. I first met Keith uh, back when he was the chief marketing officer of the Starwood Group. Um, this is it goes back well over a decade ago. And then, then, and then we you were at Kodak at the time. And I was at Kodak at the time. And then the first time, uh, the first time that Keith and I actually got together was he and I and Seth Godin. We were speaking, and it happened to be the same day as the inauguration of uh, of Obama. Uh, the reason I remember that is uh, the day before we all spoke, and the next day was Obama's inauguration. And I finished up the program and flew right to the inauguration. I remember, and I had a copy of the, of the book "Never Eat Alone," and I read that on the plane up to uh, to Baltimore because my plane got canceled in the DC because of the inauguration, and it was like. I had to struggle to get there, but I'm so glad to have Keith with us and to be a part of this and have everything uh, be of a chance. Keith, let's talk about your newest book that's out. What 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 drove you to write this new book? Gosh, um, I don't know how far back you want to go, Jeff, but I can go back to eight years of age, um, or I could go back to after Never Eat Alone was written. Maybe I'll do a you know what's both. really cool about the eight eight going back when you were eight years old. Don't most of our issues and problems all start there? Actually, psychologically, they start before the age of three. Okay. Most of our most of our psychology is designed and, and set before the age of three, which means if any of you have kids over the age of three, you've already screwed them up so you can relax. Um, let's actually talk a little bit about who that kid was at eight. I, would, I grew up in Pittsburgh. My old man was an unemployed steel worker. And I say unemployed because I don't know if you look at the group here. Some of you remember how crappy the life of, of Pittsburgh was back in the 70s. Steel industry had crashed, the whole city was crumbling. And I used to remember sitting and listening to my old man tell stories as an immigrant Italian about his foreman would tell him to slow down, not work so hard because it made the foreman look bad that he was throwing off the piecemeal rate for everybody else, right? And I sat there and I said, well, wait a second. My old man is trying to bust his butt to do a great job and his foreman is telling him to slow down. I don't think it's Japan's fault that we can't keep up with American industry, that in American industry can't keep up. And so I swore at that point that I was going to grow up and be governor of Pennsylvania and fix manufacturing in Pennsylvania. Little did an eight-year-old know the governor of Pennsylvania is not going to fix manufacturing um, or competitiveness. And then I, I, I ultimately have spent my entire life on that, that commitment, though. I know the impact on families when business doesn't get their shit together. And I have spent my entire life to help executives and organizations accelerate the capacity to transform and keep up. And I have to say, as I wake up today, 
um, you know, I'm sitting in the executive team of General Motors, and my dad was a UAW steelworker, and I am coaching that team to to step up and beat the Amazons, the Googles, and the Teslas of the world, and make that transformation occur. And I have to say, I tip my hat to Mary Barra and Mark Royce. They're some of the best ex- executives I've ever worked with. But that is what leading without authority is about. That book is to me the culmination of 20 years of coaching to really understand what does it take for you as a leader to be transformative in your industries, not just um, come up with the strategies, but how do you truly team what I call teaming out? How do you redefine even who your team is to reinvent who you are in this last year of 2020? There's been a lot of disruption. And I know if you're hanging out with Jeff, you get it. But I would ask each of you to nod one way or the other. Do you really feel that you have reinvented yourselves for the next five to 10 years on the back of this disruption? Because that's what a great executive needs to do right now. This is an inflection point to leap forward. And we've been given a great gift, a blessing to push a remote reboot to the world. And, you know, this is a guidebook for you to do that. Did anybody else just get chill bumps? Because I did. I, I'm telling you, I got goosebumps, and that tells me when I'm on, when we're on to something. And this is what I love about Keith. And Keith, you actually in the book uh, "Leading Without Authority," which I absolutely just adored. Uh, one, when I first read the title, but second, when you sent me a personal copy of the book before it came out, and read through it and talked about it. But what I thought was really cool was the model of co-elevation. You know, uh, how how do we get started in that process? How do we bring along that solopreneur? How do we get ready for that next big thing? I mean, it's there and I'm writing notes after notes, you know, myself all the time now of the new stuff I have to do because days have become weeks, weeks have become months, months have become years now for us. I mean, this is like, if you don't get this, you know, I and I had a speaker who recently said, I can't wait until I walk back on that stage again. And I said to the, that million dollar speaker, I can't wait until I never walk on another stage again in my life. High five. Yeah, High five right, on that. Right. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's just, I, and I spoke to a group of speakers the other day and I said, it's over. Do you understand? It's over. It's done. You're not going to do it like you used to. So let's talk about how to give you a model. Let me give you a model that I would like all of you to consider. Um, First point, and again, I, I just know who I'm sitting with when I'm sitting with Jeff. Um, the first step is this year, you should be looking at redesigning your business models and your workforce models. Yeah. And you're not going to do it yourself. So I would suspect that the, the page that Jeff has scribbles all over it. This, you could organize those into a combination of reinventing our business model, which also includes our service delivery model, which includes our product and service, et cetera. You can include that. And then how do you re-engineer your workforce model in order to meet that business model? So that's the strategic element. And I would say, and to do that, you need foresight. And so how are you going to get foresight? How are you as an individual? One of the ways you're getting foresight is belonging to this great C-suite network. You're getting guests like me and Peter Diamandis and whoever else comes here who are thinking about future elements. I'm, I'm talking to you about the workforce of the future. And, and, P, and there are others who talk about other elements of the future. You need to infuse yourself with that insight to have foresight. But to do that, you need to become and start embracing something I call inclusion. 
That's step number two, foresight and inclusion. And they're inter interroped because inclusion means you need to have a team co-creating your future, not you. Please don't ever use the word I. Here's the stuff I have to do. You are not going to do anything. The creation of the future of your vision is a co-creation with a set of individuals. And I think of that inclusion as a set of, of concentric circles. First, it's you and your organization. You and your organization have to start co-creating the future of the workforce and future of your business models. Stop thinking it's you. And I, I don't know what level of organization any of you are at, but I tend to find the smaller organizations, the leaders take on way too much responsibility and sense of self to, to get stuff done, that entrepreneurial zeal, et cetera. Stop thinking that way. In a remote world, the reason Jeff and I are reconnected is because in a remote world, I started to look at rebooting my business model in the middle market and started rebooting my business model for thinking about online delivery and other things. And so what did I do? I started to ask, who's my team? Well, my team is anybody who can help me get there. And one of those individuals came to mind was Jeff and what he's built. And I invited Jeff into being of service to him, right? To what can I do to help you, Jeff? And the flip side is I want Jeff to help me figure out and crack the code of this business model, right? So Jeff's on my team. I'm on Jeff's team. I wouldn't be here giving a free talk if, if, I, if he and I weren't partners in some way. And they can be loose partners or they can be tight partners. And that's up for us to figure out. So I want to each but, but of you to ask oh, We do that, Keith, right? I say, hey, look, I want you on this show. I need you on this thing. I need you over here. Let me help you with this. What can I do with this? You know, exactly. so that's what we start to do. Let's talk about some of those stories. Can you share some of the successful co-elevation that's going on? Yeah, yeah so the word, the word I came up with that defines how I want each of you to define your relationships is co-elevation. And you're defining them along those concentric circles. So you start with defining your, how do you lead? I want you to lead with co-elevation. I want you to lead. The definition of co-elevation is when a group or, or you and an individual have a shared mission and a commitment to each other. You just you, We just described it. I mean, exactly. in essence, right? You help me. I help you. We're, it's not like we sat here and said, oh, okay, let's keep score. I got to keep score. Let's keep no. score. We don't keep score. Yeah. It's about co-elevation. We're lifting each other up. We've got a shared mission and a commitment to each other as well. Now, I want you to lead your executive team that way. I want, your, I want you to start thinking about how your executive team coaches each other that way. How many of you have an executive team that you think might be a little too siloed, meaning they're coming to the table with what they have to do, but you're the hub and spoke of it all. You're the one running around giving coaching. You're the one running around giving feedback. You're the one that is always at the center. And you don't need to be. That's tiring. It, it is. It's like playing whack-a-mole. Yeah. I want you to embrace a model of you're coaching a team who owns each other's success. That shift is really integral, really, really integral to you getting enough bandwidth and, and, and enough ability to step out of being the hub and spoke to actually lead the foresight question I was talking about before. You're not going to be able to lead the breakthrough of how do you get to where you want to get in five years if you're running around playing whack-a-mole, lifting energy, giving coaching, right, giving feedback, et cetera. If you're doing all of that yourself, imagine if your whole team that reported to you was responsible for each other's success. Now, that's something I call recontracting. You've got to re... Because this is an old and new model. I was with a company called National Instruments yesterday. Um, 
you know, coaching General Motors, coaching Delta Airlines, coaching National Instruments. And we had just finished a cycle of coaching this team. It's about a six-month period of time coaching this team. And at the end of it, I was, I was crying hearing how they were speaking, team members. The CMO was at odds with business unit leaders and the, um, and the head of sales because they were all in their silos competing for resources, attention, points of view, right? But if you as a leader stop being that hub and spoke, stop letting people come and talk behind each other's backs, stop um, you know, being the individual that's giving everybody direction and feedback. But if you start to let those people recontract oh, in an open environment, what does it mean for us to be a co-elevating team? C-Suite Radio. Let me ask you a question, Keith. Does everybody have to practice that, or can you have a few practices to begin with to get it to there? Well, I like to I like to start with having a conversation with the team as a whole, so that at least the understanding is there what you're trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Because you know, I'm looking at Mark here in front of me, and I'll Mark, if you're a CEO or a team lead or what you are, but Mark, I would say if you have a conversation with your team and says, "What does it mean to be a real dream team?" You know, I heard about this thing co-elevation. Um, you know, Frazi went through them. There's eight attributes of a high-performing team. You know, one of them is candor. Are we candid with each other in the room? Can we speak our minds openly in a room with each other? Only 20% of teams claim that they can speak and challenge each other openly in a room, which means 80% of your teams are conflict avoidant and they talk behind each other's backs. And we think that's acceptable. It is not acceptable. Right. And yeah. so we have the contract up front. And once we have the contract, then you're right, Jeff, there may be a few people who bite into that contract and want to run with it. And they start to be what we call the role models. How do we teach? How do you teach? So I've been leading with, without authority for years. I mean, I just never knew that until I read your book, you know, in well, terms CMOs of, had to. Yeah, we, I mean, we just did. We just, right. I mean, we, because <laughs> we didn't have enough authority. We, we couldn't control we never, sales. We couldn't that's right. We didn't have the budgets. We didn't, we it was always somebody else's. They were responsible. We just said, this is the way it's going to be. And so how do I get, how do I get other team members to have that same thing? Like, why are you asking me? You know, I mean, that's my favorite question is don't, you you know, I, when, when team members now come to me with a question, I answer the question with a question. I mean, I'm doing that constantly because, yeah, because I am not going to, you want to be, I know you, you, you're on to the next five things. Done. Kept getting dragged back into the last five things. Yeah, I'm going to kill. Get on to the next five things. Yeah, I'm going to kill somebody. Yeah, I'm just, right? so, just going to. Someone's going to get hurt. And it ain't going to well, be. That's me. why you ask those questions. Yeah. Here's the thing that leaders need to be. Leaders need to start being coaches. Yeah, and that means you need to start coaching people into a set of behaviors that they'll start standing up to. How allowing you to lead the way you want to lead. I'll give you a couple of tools. Uh, if you go to coelevation.com. There is a a framework there, um, both a short diagnostic that you can ask yourself. There are eight attributes of a high-performing team that you need to coach to. And in that, those eight attributes, you need to start coaching your team on a dialogue around, where are we here? On a scale of zero to five, how are we on candor? Do we want to get better? On a scale of zero to five, where are we on... um, the willingness to bring our problems here and collaborate versus solving our own problems back in our own places. So there's these eight areas, these, these eight areas, and you can go there and you can get a, a, an instructional manual on how to have the dialogue. So you start with having the dialogue. 
And then you've got to put into your primacy, these eight behaviors are really important to coach the team on. And just like Jeff said, every time you have a shot, you pause and you coach to it. You, you, you call a red flag on the play in the middle of a room and you say, you know what, folks, I don't think I'm hearing the truth. Meaning, I'm not saying anyone's lying. I think y'all are holding back. So I would like to pause and I'd like to say, what's not being said in this room? And you pause long enough and you might hear the answer. If you don't, in a virtual world, send them to breakout rooms. Send your team to breakout rooms in groups of two, which you can do in a snap of a finger on a Zoom room and say, I'm sending you this breakout room for five minutes. I want you to talk to each other candidly about what should be said in that room that's not being said. And then let's come back into the room in five minutes and I want all of you to report out. Oh, that's awesome. Now, now you're a coach yeah, and you're changing the behavior and you're starting to set the intention that you believe in the team coaching each other and saying what they're thinking in a room. That, which is, you know, awesome. I mean, the other, one of the other techniques I use now too, Keith, and I, I'm sure I read about it in the book and I read it in your book. It reinforced it, but I like horses. I give you a horse example. I, I try to get a horse to go into a, um, a trailer, an enclosed trailer. It's not a natural thing to get a horse into a constricted space where they're going to be trapped because most horses think something's going to eat them at all, all given time. So I, what I have to do is I take them up to the trailer, make it calm, nice. Hey, look, there's some hay in there. We're going to go see a filly. It's going to be a fun thing. So get in, won't get in, but then I have to back it up and I have to make, and then I, I give twitch it on its thing and I scream at it. I yell at it. I make the thing over here more uncomfortable than what's over here. So I do that constantly with my team. I make it more uncomfortable with the things they're doing in bad behavior or the way in which they're asking or leading to then the other side of that. And so, and, and if, so my team that are listening right now, when you see me hit you with a million emails and a million questions, I'm trying to make it more uncomfortable because the question that you're asking me, you already know the answer to, or you already know the action you should be taking. So this is my way of just hammering on you to go to the nice place to get in with a trailer and let's so, go. So look, I, by, by the way, it's very Pavlovian. I get that. And I, and I use it all the time myself. Um, I'm looking at the chat room while we're chatting and I'm seeing some of the questions. One of them is around psychological safety because yeah. Jeff, you and your and my style isn't always the most psychologically safe style. Get out. Seriously. Oh, so we got to recognize. Is that, I need to put my gun away. Is that what you're saying right exactly. now? Exactly. Well, no, you don't actually. And that knife. There's a knife and a. I have to tell you, a knife, a knife and a gun. I have both here. Thank goodness for virtual meetings. Thank goodness <laughs> for virtual meetings. That brandishing of your knife and gun is not intimidating to me here in Los Angeles. Oh, so come I'm on! It's fine. a big knife. Right? It's a the seriously. You know what? It's a really big knife. You can only hurt yourself. It's exactly. True. Yeah. Okay. Um, there we go. So what I would say, though, is when I send people to breakout rooms, I am creating psychological safety that might not exist in the big room. Yeah, because we scare them. We scare them. So it was not only we do, we do disproportionately, but any big room scares anybody. Yeah. So what I love about being in a remote and virtual world is that I believe that if you're really trying to transform your organization, remote and virtual has some really unique assets that we didn't have in a physical world that we have now. There's two major assets you have in a remote and virtual world. One is the ability to redefine your team as broadly as you want. You can invite anybody you want into your team 
for 10 minutes, for five minutes, for half an hour. You could, you could involve your entire company in strategic planning for next year. And in fact, I'm doing that right now with one of the largest consumer packaged goods companies in the world. We've asked, we, we went ahead and set the strategy. Here are the five most important strategies for next year. We reported it to all the white collar employees at this company in North America, thousands of people. We told them in a push of a button, we sent everybody into small groups of three and, and they were in similar roles. So all the salespeople in similar roles are all in small groups of three, et cetera. And then we asked them to open up a Google doc, which we shipped them. And we asked them two questions. What opportunities of growth are we missing? And um, what risks might we be missing? The, and they entered this data and then they came back into the main room. So far, we're now into the meeting, 20 minutes. We keyed up the five strategies. We broke out the whole company. They were in there for 15 minutes, right? We came back, we thanked them, and we paused the meeting. We said, we're going to be back in a week. We're going to go look at all that data, and we're going to report to them how the company has now influenced tweaks and changes to the strategy. Where in the heck did you ever see that in some Vegas rollout of your aunt? Nothing. No, never, never. And all the things, you know, the, the, you know, I used to be in charge of strategic planning at most of the companies I've ever worked with because of my roles. And never, we never thought like that, the way it was done and the way it's been done. And of course, you know, we've changed. And, and so the, the pandemic has led us to an even a bigger breakdown of the way it's done. C-Suite Radio. So let me ask a key question, Keith, because are we the biggest inhibitors are we the ones standing in the way? I mean, most of us are old school. We've, we've done it this way. We've done it this way, what we're comfortable with, and this is the way it should be. Are we the ones that are going to slow this down? So what I do with, look, Leading Without Authority was written for two audiences. One, it was written for everybody here who has authority. And the point is, stop it, damn it. Start to open up inclusion Start to open yourselves up vulnerably, start to create psychological safety, realize greatness is going to happen in us, not in I. Okay. So the it's for it's for us. The second this is is for all the people who work for us. Because what I and I literally, you know, Jeff, it was funny because the last half an hour I was on the phone to one of my division presidents, and he was complaining about not having enough clarity of roles in the company. And he was suggesting that he wanted to raise his own authority to a CEO position of, of the group so that he could get greater clarity in roles. And I really understand it. But what I said to him was, what's stopping you from being the CEO or acting like the CEO now? Just take it. Take right. It. I mean, that, I mean, that'd be when, when you say that to me and if somebody comes to me and my team, I go, well, just do it. Just do it. So do what, what do you what do you need? Well, I just, what you would need you a title? Here, take a title. What would be the first thing you would want to do as the CEO of this company? If I'm chairman, what would be the first thing you want to do as the CEO? So we went through a couple of things. I was like, cool, go do it. Yeah. Okay. Now why do you need the title? Go do it. And so all the way down, and you know, Jeff, when you and I met, um, I was a pretty young kid. Um, and and I was in my 30s when I was chief marketing officer over at Starwood. Yeah. And and I had already been chief marketing officer of Deloitte, and I got that job in my late 20s. Now, the way I got that job is I heard the CEO of Deloitte talk about wanting to elevate the Deloitte brand. And 
he wanted it to be equal to McKinsey and Accenture someday. Well, I thought about that. By the way, I was a 24-year-old kid at Deloitte, and I heard the CEO say that. What did I do? I was stupid enough to think that I could make a difference. So without authority, I went back to one of my professors at Harvard Business School because I was a summer intern, and I said, I want to do a white paper next year on professional services marketing. And I went out and interviewed the CMO of, of McKinsey, who was Bill Mattisoni. The CEO of Accenture was Jim Murphy for my white paper. And I told them that I was a kid at Deloitte. I told them I was writing white paper. And I told them I would give them the feedback. And I'd give it to anybody, E&Y, et cetera. Well, I, I did this white paper. And I shipped it to the CEO of Deloitte. I said, you don't know me, sir, but I was an intern at your company last year. And I was in the audience and I heard you say that you wanted to be your brand to be defined as the future of, of, of uh, consulting. And here, sir, is what your competition is doing. And here's what I would suggest that Deloitte consider doing. He was so fucking floored. And he called me. He was in New York. I was up in Boston. He called me and said, kid, I don't know who you are, but would you come down and have dinner with me? I did. And he said, I want you to join the firm full time. I know you're an intern. And I said, I'll do it under one condition. And that is that you and I have dinner once a year, as long as I'm here. Well, the long and the short of it is we carried that relationship on. And within a few years, I became the youngest elected partner at Deloitte and the chief marketing officer of Deloitte. Well, you, you became the youngest CMO of a Fortune 500 company ever. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're the youngest CMO of any Fortune 500 company in the history of Fortune 500 company. So the question I have for all of you as leaders is are you opening up the opportunity? Now, Deloitte wasn't necessarily opening up the opportunity. I kind of did it out of instinct. I did it out of wanting to honor my dad who busted his ass to give me everything that he gave me. I, I, I did it out of a sense of fear of not being successful, all that kind of stuff. But the reality is, what are you doing to get out of your way to raise up the young Farazis in your organization who might want to start doing great things? Or are you locking them down into a role that they feel they're boxed into and can't innovate out of? You can't afford, you cannot afford right now as a leader to, to keep your people locked down. There is so much innovation about to occur. You need an all hands on duty, finding those innovations and raising them up in your organization. You know, and I, both, I wrote Leading Without Authority for that audience, I wanted every person in the company to have this leadership book so that every person in the company knew that their job, that their job was to lead with or without a title and to then have the roadmap to do it, which is what I, I lay out in that book. Um, so yes, we have to get out of our own way because I am certain, Jeff, that you and I and so many people here in this room, that out of our own sense of command, control, old school, get it done. We're out ahead of everybody. We're charging. We're probably shutting people down from their own innovation. Without question. And, and you know, it, it's, it's discussions like this that, real, that make me, one, get, give me inspiration and motivation. And also, it also helps me to get a couple of breakthroughs to say, listen, there's some good things I'm doing. There's some things I could do a lot better, right? And so you need to have this constant kind of like uh, drip of being able to talk great, great thought leaders like yourself to just say, Hey, I got to do this better. I got to do it better. You know, we have some of the right instincts 
It's about how do we develop the right kinds of tool sets that help support those instincts to do it right and then develop them into great habits and and, uh, and, and develop, hopefully, traits that you can continue to be. And so it just becomes so natural for you. I, I tell a great story in the book of a young med student who goes into, e, into the ER and sees all the inefficiencies of the ER. And they, they're feeling castrated by dealing with all of the inefficiencies of the ER, particularly this one nurse who's sort of like a male version of Nurse Cratchit, who seems to have a lock on, uh, on the ER and is actually in, seems ineffective. The nurse is, is bad at, at regulating um, uh, supplies and other things, and yet they've been there forever and nobody, nobody screws with them. Um, and yet this, and so and it happened to be that this young man was recently out of school and in this thing, and his old man is a buddy of mine and said, hey, I want to, would you mind uh, talking to my son for brunch someday? Jeff, and you know, you and I always get those kind of requests and we're always happy to do it. And so I had I brunch with this young kid and I'm talking to him I'm like, stop being a, a damn victim. Like, make a difference. And he's like, Yo, you don't understand. This person, Devin, would never let me. I said, well, what permission do you have? Have you ever gone to Devin and said to Devin, you've been here forever. I'm a brand new wet doctor. Would you help mentor me to be successful here in the ER? Like, what do you think? And Because all these nurses used to get shit on by these young interns who come in and act like they're, you know, big stuff and turn that around, enlist that person as a mentor. Guess what happens when you enlist them as a mentor? Now you have permission to give them coaching. Absolutely. Now you'll, now, why don't you say to them, Hey, by the way, is there anything I can do to help? Like, you know, you, you seem awfully busy. Can I do anything on the, can, is there anything I can do to help on the, uh, on the, on the ordering of, of supplies? Well, what this kid found out, his name is Z. Um, what the kid found out was that um, Devin, it wasn't actually Devin's problem. The, the ordering system was so complicated in the hospital that it was, it was, and it would just move to technology, which wasn't working, which by the way, Z had a lot of acumen in. Z partnered with the, the nurse and ended up creating a much more streamlined ordering process and use of the technology, right? Now the two of them are partnering and they started to be seen by others as an iconic example in the whole hospital of wow. how when people start partnering, ultimately Z ended up being put onto a committee to help in customer effectiveness of the hospital as a whole. And so this is an example where if, you know, and, but then this is, all of these are examples where people had the tenacity to do it on their own. My question to each of you is, can you create an environment and give a little prodding so that the 20% who are about to do it, but wouldn't naturally can do it. Well, hey, folks, everybody, we know that the world of business as we know it right now, it is forever changed, right? Our models, our workforce has changed. Yeah, but what we're seeing here, it's, however, it's not so much about the change, but really how we adapt to it. That's the key. And so our guest today, you know, Keith Frazzi, good friend, management consultant, team coaching company with Frazzi Greenlight. Uh, helped us to open that up. So, Keith, thank you so much. You're listening to All Business with Jeffrey Hazlett, brought to you by C-Suite Radio, a podcast network featuring today's top business experts and is part of the C-Suite Network, the world's most trusted network of C-Suite executives. Find this and other business podcasts on c-suiteradio.com.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.